so let's have a word of prayer together and then we're going to hear uh, we're going to hear a song from Mark Engelhart and then we will dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and see how God works all this out. Uh, so let us join our hearts in prayer. Father, we come to you today with hearts that are searching and seeking. Father, we know that we seek you only because you have first revealed yourself to us. Because you have told us in Romans 3 that there is none that seeketh after God. No, not one. And so, Lord, um, we know even from the standpoint of searching for truth and searching for why we are made and searching for the truth of how we were made and what is the purpose of life. Lord God, that none of those good questions actually originate in us when we come to, find, to search to see, is there truly a creator? And it is there, Lord, that as where we are drawn to you and then you begin a work in our lives that has eternal consequences then we know the truth of the scripture that says that salvation is of the lord and that we should understand that little phrase lord god that every element of salvation from the very beginning to the completion, uh, to the glorification, that all of that is a work of power that you do. And that that work of power has in its basis the uh, that which... Uh, you base all the grace that you provide to us, that that basis is Jesus Christ, that that basis is that there, there was and is yet a cross, and that the, the blood that was shed for us has eternal uh, power and that the life that came with the resurrection of Jesus is forever and that all the goodnesses and promises that are made to those who are believers through Christ all of those come to us by way of the work that he performed on the cross and the work whereby his sacrifice was susceptible uh, to uh, 
satisfy, Lord God, your absolute um, judgment that without Christ would have to come upon the whole world. And that goes on, Lord, into eternity. And so we thank you this morning for so great a salvation. We thank you, Lord, that you have not left us here uh, just to figure things out on our own, but you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us uh, the Word. The Word is truth. The Holy Spirit takes that Word and He presents to us the beautiful person of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and through whom we have access unlimited to all the goodness of the Father. Thank you, Lord. Bless these that hear this morning. Glorify your name through them. Father, bring them to be as Paul speaks in this passage, members of that chaste virgin that is being or will be has been espoused to Jesus Christ and will be united with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Lord, we look forward to all these things. We, we uh, become disinterested in all friendship with the world and we set our hope on the promise that where Christ is there we will be also and so Lord with all this in mind we say you are great and mighty God you are awesome you are glorious you are beautiful you are loving you are just uh, and there is no shadow of turning in you thank you lord bless this word today for you know there is better than i lord you know that the uh, the material that is contained here in second corinthians 12 uh, cannot be exhausted in an hour. Uh, but guide all of us, Lord, as we approach it, that we will get the essentials and we will be able to uh, compare this word to what is happening in the world today, what is happening among governments, among men and among those who profess to be members of the church of Jesus Christ. Bless the word. Have, may it have free course, for we pray and expect in you. 
Amen. All right. Alice, let's hear from Mark. Run and play. There's a place I can sing these songs of praise. Well, dancing with my father God in fields of grace. Well, dancing with my father God in fields of grace. There's a place that I lose myself within. And there's a place I can find myself again. Dancing with my father, God, he feels a grace. Dancing with my father, God, he feels a grace. There's a place that religion finally dies. There's a place I can lose my selfish pride. But that's when the Father God who feels afraid. That's when the Father God who feels afraid. Well, I love my father. My father loves me. I dance for my father. My father sings over me. Well, I love my father. Father loves me, I dance for my father. My father sings over me. Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing can take that away from me. Oh, nothing, nothing, nothing can take that away from me. There's a place where religion finally dies. There's a place where I lose myself in a strife. That's when my body got in fields of grace. having uh, our Sunday morning get-togethers, assemblies, and I certainly miss Mark. Um, I miss you all. Um, the day will come when we will no longer have to simply meet uh, virtually. However, 
when that day does come, those who, those who are scattered about, we will also continue to uh, put, put these uh, services online. So do not fear. Okay. I'd like to direct you to 1 Corinthians, or pardon me, 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. Oh, chapter 11. Alice is here keeping me straight. Um, you know, I find that over and over again, I am drawn back to those things that are taught in this letter. If, if you are not absolutely familiar with 2 Corinthians, here's what you need to know. You need to know that on Paul's first missionary journey, uh, he went into Greece and uh, countries um, surrounding that area called Achaia. Um, and one of the first cities that he spent considerable time in was the city of Corinth. Now Corinth, you might consider it uh, as, as analogy uh, to be kind of like uh, Las Vegas. Uh, Corinth was a, a, a massive hub of uh, sin, and uh, idolatry, immorality of every kind. And so uh, we should not be surprised that it is in the letter of 1 Corinthians, which was written after Paul left that congregation and went on to preach to others, that Paul found that uh, one of the major difficulties in Corinth was that Christians there had a profession of faith, but many of them were continuing on with their, uh, their ingrained sin, immoralities of all kinds, and they were bringing it into the church. Jesus Christ. And there we get the very definition of carnality, which I hope everybody will, it will stick in their brain, because that is where early on, I believe chapter three of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, are you not carnal? And then he tells us, the broad definition of what it means to be carnal. Now, the word carnal simply means fleshly. That means uh, not spiritual, but driven and controlled by the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the mind. And he does not uh, refer to these so-called uh, carnal uh, professors of faith, uh, he doesn't refer to them as sinners, but he refers to them 
as those who walk as men. Because um, when we grow up into Christ, suddenly when we are compared with the rest of the world, we look a little strange. And so, my friends, if uh, through your life you find that people uh, who are outside of the body of Christ don't understand you or look at you as if you were somehow uh, from another planet, uh, you can know that something good's happening in your life because the mark of believers who are growing up is demonstrated from the outside. Of course, it's on the inside, but it's demonstrated from the outside in how we behave. And the word walk is uh, basically a euphemism for the word behave so that we do not then continue to walk as men. All right. Now, you might guess that after Paul left Corinth, there rose up in that church. Now remember, there weren't, there weren't 10 churches in Corinth. There may have been 10 places where they met, but it was all considered one church. Uh, and yet today, even though there are many uh, denominations and divisions of Christianity, the truth is this, and it'll never change. There is but one church, and the Lord Jesus knows who are his. And as you often hear me say, let those who name the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But within that church, uh, because the hearts of many able, uh, carnally able men in the church came to openly resist the truth that Paul taught. And they began to talk about Paul as if he were an enemy. And they began to uh, denigrate Paul's special place as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And actually in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, um, verses 9 and 10, we get a little flavor of what they were saying about him, uh, whereby Second uh, Corinthians 10, 9, that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is contemptible. And so the kind of things that you see go on in politics today, uh, you know, has always been in the earth. And so these enemies of Paul found every way 
whether it be the way he looked or the way he spoke, found every way possible to uh, denigrate him so that he would not be esteemed in that church. And because of that, and because that there was such opposition to him, he wrote the letter of 2 Corinthians. And he wrote it for the express purpose that uh, he would have an answer for everyone in Corinth that put him down. And it's, it's really unique as letters uh, in the New Testament in regard to that. It's basically his apologetic as to defending his ministry and how he went about presenting the person of Jesus Christ. And, um, but in the midst of that letter of 2 Corinthians, I find some of the most valuable passages uh, that have uh, burned themselves in my mind. Particularly, I would say, 2 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 5. Now, I'm going to get off this idea for, uh, right away. But one of the things that Paul says as he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians and he is defending his ministry, he uses a phrase, he says, since, since uh, what is going on among all these false teachers is foolishness, then I will answer them with the foolish argument of my own. Because quite frankly, it it rubbed Paul the wrong way that he should have to defend his ministry. Because in most cases, I find that Paul uh, allowed God to do the defending. Um, but I am sure that the second Corinthians letter is as inspired as any other. And so now we are living in a world and we are members of the body of Christ wherein there are many who are claiming to be part of the brethren, that is, that the body of Christ is growing. Uh, there is a major move towards one world religion. And as I have told you before, that all of this really began to get started right after the 1950s. So just after World War II, uh, many, uh, many heresies began to find and take a toehold and now a foothold and now much more than that, whereby the church of Jesus Christ 
is being systematically corrupted from the inside out. And if you want to turn to the book of Acts, uh, where, and I don't want you to turn there, but if we turn to the book of Acts, we will find that Paul, uh, when he left uh, the church at Ephesus, told them that after he left, that uh, seriously flawed false teachers would rise up in that church. And he did not say they would come from the outside, but they would rise up from the inside. And that is exactly what has happened to what I call Christendom today. Um, I can't tell you how many people that uh, who know the, the fullness of the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the fullness of what his death was about, the fullness of what his resurrection was about, the fullness of what his life uh, that now becomes our life is about, that that uh, message uh, is systematically being removed from all that we would refer to as Christendom. And many people have told me, and I've seen people uh, you know, as I've, I've, I've looked for testimonies on the internet, internet and so on, so many have said that in their town, in their area, they cannot find one a local assembly that teaches the whole truth of God. I know that to be true. Um, they're out there, yes, but they are becoming less and less. And so I want to talk to you today about a word that some of you may be familiar with. And the word is postmodern. Um, if you don't know what that word means, for one thing, I've always thought the word postmodern was uh, an oxymoron. That is, it's a word that doesn't make any sense. Uh, because by definition, the word modern means that which is occurring at the very moment we are, we are living in. But according to those uh, who have uh, been uh, the, uh, the cheerleaders, for what is now referred to as postmodernism, uh, they would define modernism, and all this again uh, began to really get going after 1950, that they would define modernism as the truth in relationship to the church, as those truths, those doctrines. And this is why in postmodern churches, you will find many uh, being conditioned to say, we aren't really interested in doctrine. We don't need a whole lot of doctrine. 
which means the teaching of the truth. Um, but according to postmodernists, what we had before, you know, between the time of uh, Martin Luther and uh, the, you know, the, the coming of the postmodernists, uh, that there was in Christendom a, uh, a set of truths. Uh, often they were found in, in uh, catechisms, uh, confessions of faith, uh, but there were truths regarding the central tenets of Christianity. You know, things like the fact that Christ was born of a virgin, things like the fact that Jesus Christ is deity, the fact that God uh, exists as three persons in one uh in one godhead uh the fact that salvation is by grace through faith the fact that there is a judgment the fact that there is an eternal separation for those who fail the grace of god the fact that God, after saving men, wants to perfect them whereby they reflect in this earth, in their walk, the very image of the person of Jesus Christ. Um, and these were contained in what some people would call dogma. Well, dogma is just simply facts arrived at and listed. And dogma if it is true and correct is good dogma that is not true uh, is not to be received and so down through the ages there's been all kinds of dogma in the church for example if i would uh, talk to you about catholicism i would have to talk to you about dogma as related to uh as related to the Pope, uh, as related to uh, the worship of Mary, as related to the fact that salvation is not through Jesus Christ, but it's through the church. And I would say that yes, that is the teaching and that is what uh, they stick by. And unfortunately it happens not to be the truth. And so dogma in that way is negative. But the dogma that Jesus Christ is who the scripture says he is, that he is God come in the flesh, that he's coming again, that he not only cleanses us from all sin through his, his uh, shedding of his blood and pouring out of his life, but that he actually sends his Holy Spirit to be Christ in us and uh, brings us into a life of holiness, uh, much of which is defined in regard to uh, what we can see. Uh, you know, holiness exists inside us. It happens to have external uh, ramifications that can be seen. And so uh, we have a dogma or a teaching about sin. And 
you know, it, it comes down to the fact that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, but it has to do with those things that uh, people who call themselves by the name of Christ will accept. Uh, for example, um, if, um, if we accept that uh, Jesus Christ is simply a good man and a good teacher, then um, we have accepted a teaching doctrine, a dogma, that is, is uh, false. And so um, what I did today in this little passage um, has to do with trying to give everyone an idea. It's, it cannot be exhaustive because uh, it would require many messages to look into the practices of the postmodern church and show you all of the fallacies. But I'm going to bring up, uh, and I have these listed. If anybody wants, uh, you know, to get a copy of my list uh, that I'm going to uh, speak about today, um, let us know. We'll we'll uh, email it to you. But I'm going to start reading and then hopefully making comments um, with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly and indeed bear with me. So, you know, Paul is saying when you begin to defend yourself um, in response to uh, people who criticize you, you might be, uh, you know, as Paul puts it, he says, I'm going to speak as a fool. Uh, but the fact is that he is going to make uh, a Christian apology. That is, he is going to contend for the faith with his words. Uh, verse two, for I am jealous over you. This is the church uh, at Corinth that Paul is jealous over them with a godly jealousy. Why? For I have espoused you to one husband. Now, you know who that husband is. The, the church, the true church. You know, you want to read about the two church, read about the 10 virgins uh, when it came time for the rapture. Uh, you know, some had oil and some didn't. Um, that kind of an idea is that we, as a body in the earth, are indeed, in reality, the bride of Christ. And Paul says, I have espoused you to one husband. That is the church to Christ, the church being the bride that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And just a word there. You know, the word chaste is not a word we use very much. The word chastity is a word we don't use very much. But if you were a Jew and you were a young woman, who was uh, espoused, like, for example, Mary, the mother of Christ, was espoused to Joseph. 
when the Holy Spirit visited her and uh, told her that she was going to bear uh, the Messiah, um, you know, her becoming with child in that situation was a big problem because uh, in Israel, she would not be considered a chaste virgin because obviously she's been fooling around with someone else. And the story still exists today that was made up that uh, Jesus Christ is the son of a Roman soldier. And uh, Joseph, when he heard about her pregnancy, was a mind to put her away. And it required that God came to Joseph by an angel and said, don't put her away because that child that she bears, I'm responsible for, and that child is going to be the savior of Israel. And so chastity for a bride, and now I'm talking about the church, is that we be found at the time when we are going to be called uh, home to Christ, I'm talking about the rapture, that we are to be found uh, without spot and without blemish. That is the criterion for being chased. And so God is cleansing the members of the body of Christ. Well, what's he mean? Well, I mean that God is continually working in every member to root out sin in their life, to root out selfishness, to root out self, and to bring that person to honor and reverence only that husband whom God is going to join them to. And they aren't allowed to have any other boyfriends. They aren't allowed to, uh, uh, to have any distractions that would keep them from being uh, a good Jewish wife. That's the idea of the Jewish wedding and the bride who was without spot or blemish. And that is what Paul is agonizing over because Paul was instrumental in bringing these people, many of them, to believe in Christ, and yet they had remained fleshly or carnal because they walked as men. And Paul is grieving over that, and he's, he is jealous not for his sake, he is jealous for God. He is jealous that God deserves, that is Christ, uh, the God-man, deserves his church when, when he calls them, when, when he comes uh, as the marriage, uh, as the marriage congregation came roaring down the road in Israel, to where the bride was waiting with her, uh, with the virgins that were her friends, uh, came, you could hear them coming in the distance. We will hear the trump of God. 
and we will know beforehand, uh, not specifically, but we will begin to recognize the signs of the time. God has not left us without understanding. And we know that that meeting with our, our espoused husband in the air is near at hand. And so Paul is, is very uh, grieved and he is overcome with jealousy because what he is looking at and seeing happen in the church that was in uh, that local body in second or pardon me in Corinth was certainly could not be described as a bride fit for Christ who were uh, spotless and without blemish. Um, many, uh, many. Uh, There are many similarities between that, if you think about it, and the lamb that was to be offered at the Passover meal had to be as Christ, without spot and without blemish. And so was Christ. And so is the bride of Christ to be. Now, the one who will make us that way is God himself. You cannot clean yourself up. God does not mean to take the old man that we used to be before we received Christ and give us a new nature and then say, now I want you to, uh, I want you to make yourself righteous. I want you to make yourself the kind of a bride that Christ can be so pleased with for eternity. No, as all other things in Christianity, we get to be fit to meet Christ in the air and to, to come and be wed to him in heaven we get to that place by the very grace of God through the very faith that brought us to be saved in the first place. It is the same faith that brings us to be free from spot and blemish. That is free from being spotted by the world, free from being overcome by sin, free to be qualified to be joined in eternity as the wife of Jesus Christ. Right now we're the bride, but one day, my friends, we will be the wife. And it is a big deal. So Paul was concerned not for himself but he was concerned that the church that he had brought into existence by his preaching was not at all ready to join christ 
And so as he goes on in verse three, but he said, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So what is the simplicity that is in Christ? And drilling down, I would just have us consider three points as to what, how can I describe the simplicity of what God has done to join me in a relationship and in holy communion with him. All right. And so the simplicity that is in Christ is one, that Christ himself is savior by faith. We believe he is our savior. Two, Christ is our righteousness by faith. I don't get to be righteous by working at it. I get to be righteous because I believe God that by his working through the Holy Spirit, that sin shall no longer have power over me. I, by faith, simply say, well, what? Galatians 2.20, that's what I say. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I do live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the simplicity of growing into the righteousness that is Christ. And number three, in regard to simplicity that is in Christ, is that Christ is coming. Christ is coming. And the simplicity that is in Christ is simply that he saved me by his death. Read it in, Ro in Romans 5. For while we were yet enemies... Christ died for us. Much more if he died for us, how much more will be, we be saved by his life? So the simplicity of salvation, the simplicity that is in Christ is that Christ saves us, Christ sanctifies us, and Christ comes to get us. Now, there are many things, you know, if we open a theology book and look up the doctrine of Christ, it will have many chapters. But remember the simplicity in the heart of it, that it's about Christ. It's not about how I perform. It is about whether or not I believe. And so I would just refer you to 2 Timothy, where Paul said, as you have heard over and over from me, I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded 
that he is able to keep that which I committed unto him against that day. That is the simplicity of Christ and what he does in my life and in yours. Now, what has happened to that gospel under the postmodern idea of what is the proper way to approach the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the Spirit, and the gospel um, of um, simply the gospel of truth. And so let us look at verse 4, which is the heart of this passage. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have pardon me which you have not accepted you might well bear with him in other words he's being sarcastic here if somebody bring you a pack of lies should i say you do well by allowing that one to become your teacher. Well, this is what has happened in the postmodern church. The postmodern church started out as an idea. Eventually, uh, the postmodern church brought us seeker friendly, whereby the way to build a church is to make the church look like the world so that the world will be comfortable there. And now we don't hear a whole lot about seeker-friendly anymore. Uh, and before seeker-friendly, there was the term evangelical. So we've gone from, in 1950, we've gone from evangelicals to seeker-friendly, and then to uh, what is touted now as the new apostolic reformation. And the end of all of this is a postmodern church that will break down all barriers between all worshipers of any kind, whether they be idolaters, whether they be heretics, whether they be Satan worshipers, will break down every barrier and so the idea is unity at the expense of the truth. And so what we find in the postmodern church is as follows. First, we find a postmodern Jesus. What do you mean by that? Well, it means we find a Jesus who is not God. We find a Jesus who is a good man and a teacher. We find a Jesus who uh, simply 
is a is a really easy man to know and is a man who requires and demands nothing. We find a postmodern Jesus who does not call men to repentance. We find a postmodern Jesus who does not require obedience to the truth when it was him who said, you shall know the truth, and it will be the truth that sets you free. But we don't want to divide our churches today with such little inconveniences called the truth, because we might offend someone. And so anything goes. Anything is susceptible to Jesus. And if you bring up the idea that, well, gee, uh, I see that uh, now uh, people who are openly gay are members of your church and who are serving in offices of leadership are that uh, people who make a habit of fornication because a lot of these people are young people and uh, living with fornication is just a way of life. Never even a thought given to it. No problem. Jesus just accepts you and he never calls for anything uh, that would even resemble you turning away from sin. The postmodern Jesus uh, is not really very interested in the truth. Uh, what he is interested in is that you all simply just get along and that uh, you don't allow any kind of uh, characteristics of God involving righteousness to separate you. In fact, we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about sin. We don't want to talk about righteousness. We don't want to talk about judgment. The postmodern Jesus, who is just a good man, who can be plugged in to any teaching to give it credibility. Eastern religions. I mean, years ago when I first opened up the purpose-driven church. And I began to read about transcendental meditation as a way to, uh, for one to uh, become uh, more uh, related and to come into deeper fellowship with the Lord. I was appalled. I was, I was absolutely astounded. Uh, but now... Uh, we are coming to the place where if you're a Hindu, the Hindus will say, well, yes, there was Jesus. He was a good man. The Muslims and Islam say Jesus was a good man. Uh, and everybody has something good to say about Jesus. Uh, and therefore, that is a unifying characteristic in the use of Christ. However, we don't go into the scripture and see what Christ really had to say. 
we don't really understand the primary tenets of the Sermon on the Mount, where what Christ had to say was that all you self-righteous people who are attempting to reach God uh, by, uh, by the adherence to rules and regulations, that was primarily the Ten Commandments, uh, and the Ten Commandments are great, but nobody will ever be saved by them. Um, I, I just can't, don't have time to go into that. Uh, but Christ was saying that you Jews who say you keep all the commandments have failed to measure up to the righteousness of God. And then he said, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the of the Pharisees who were the highest class of those who kept the rules, if your righteousness is not greater than that, you don't have any hope. You will never enter into the kingdom of God. And so Christ's message was, was a message that was actually very narrow and matter of fact he said it was narrow he said narrow is the way and straight is the gate and few there will be that find it but christ is just a name in so many of the postmodern churches which are filled again i would tell you with young people you don't find very many older folks like Alice and I in these churches because we, we couldn't stand what we hear. But the young person who comes in with an empty head and already filled with uh, uh, the, uh, the tenets that have been taught even in our schools for the last 30 years, uh, which basically just says, uh, uh, I'm okay, you're okay. Uh, we don't have to um, make an effort to measure up. We'll make sure everybody, when, when the test scores come back, you can be sure that you will get 100. You are going to get an A, whether you know the material or not. And that is the idea that people bring in and, and try to then mold the church in such a way that it doesn't matter about your behavior. It does not matter about what you have received as the truth. That is the presentation. Every time I hear one of these preachers doing a sermon, he will mention the name of Jesus. But he won't tell you what Jesus really stood for. He won't tell you about the blood of Jesus. He will not tell you that without Jesus, men are lost in a hopeless eternity. No, the word is put in there to give the message some credibility associated with what they would call Christianity. And so he's just a good man that you can plug in to any message you want to preach.
Secondly, the postmodern Holy Spirit. The postmodern Holy Spirit is presented not as God, but as an enlightening human power that you can tap into by simply looking within yourself. Now, this is not a new idea. This is nothing but remade Gnosticism, which uh, comes from the Greek word gnosis. Gnosticism, which which was uh, refuted by Paul and others uh, in the New Testament, uh, was the idea that you have all the seeds of God living in you. Uh, if you are a Mormon, for example, uh, you yourself can become God. And if you get far enough, we'll give you your own planet and you can run your own universe. And that is, is the idea of Gnosticism. It is a hierarchy of spirits uh, and a progression from one spiritual level to another by looking inside yourself and simply letting the God that is in you out to change your life and to make your life what you think it ought to be. And so the postmodern Holy Spirit is actually presented as something that every human being has. He is not a person who comes um, he is, he is a power. It isn't, he isn't even personal other than that you are God, which is what we are doing in our postmodern churches. Uh, we are teaching a message that the problem with, with human beings is not that they, they don't recognize sin in their own life, they don't recognize the righteousness of God and they don't call out to Christ and understand the work of the cross whereby they might reckon themselves dead indeed unto sin but alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. They simply bypass all of that and say, let the God that is in you make you into an image that you can respect. And so um, the problem with men under the postmodern gospel, or pardon me, postmodern work of the Holy Spirit, the problem with men is that they do not have good self-esteem. Now, I, I don't know how you think, well, I think I know how most of you think. But contrary to the way most people think, self-esteem is a big problem. Because if we come before God thinking we know more than he does, or if we come before God and don't recognize what he says about it, you know, where he says there's no good, there's no one good, no, not one. There's none that seeketh after God. They've all gone uh, completely out of the way. Uh, and there is no goodness in them. 
but we say, Lord, there is goodness in me, and all I need to do is discover that. And I need to be, I need to feel good about myself. Well, one feeling good about themselves does not lead to repentance. No. And so the working of the postmodern Holy Spirit is to convict of nothing. Whereas John 16, 8, where it talks about the work of the Holy Spirit, John 16, 8 says, when he comes into the world, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How far do you think that somebody like me would get ministering the word in a postmodern church? And then uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the fact that every man is a sinner and lost and on their way to an eternal condemnation. Uh, and, and then talk about how men left to themselves have absolutely nothing good in them and then talk about the fact that everyone who fails to receive the, the grace of God is going to be eternally lost but that is the work of the Holy Spirit but not the postmodern Holy Spirit the postmodern Holy Spirit says I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Let's just enjoy ourselves. Let us come together in a great unity of uh, believing basically nothing, but we'll have a good time. We'll feel good about ourselves. And so it is a, it is a religion that simply applies to feelings. And that's why so much that goes on with all of the, the, the rock music, which goes on with the stage productions that, are, that, that happen in all of these postmodern churches. And, uh, uh, and in some, the uh, you know, angel uh, glory clouds floating through the air, the... Uh, angel dust coming out of the ceiling uh, and the false miracles that are continually faked before these people. And all of that applies to the senses. And that is the only thing that's going to be fed under the postmodern working of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the postmodern spirit will be presented as a comforter. Yes, he is the comforter. But he will be the comforter of those who refuse to turn away from sin, who refuse to turn to the cross, whereby uh, they can be washed and changed and made after the image of the person of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in the postmodern setting is the comforter 
of those maintaining all manner of their love of sin and evil. That is what is occurring. And finally, there is another gospel out of verse 4. And so I said, what is the postmodern gospel? Well, the postmodern gospel makes no call to men whereby they will be convicted of sin. You never want to bring sin up in the postmodern setting. You, you because why well, pastor that would make that would that would break unity in the people. I mean uh, and uh, that will make people think less of themselves. And how are you going to build this large assembly that is foremost on your mind that you know the more of them we have the more the larger our budget can be the more that we have and we can milk them for every dime by every kind of scheme so that we can be the fattest and the biggest and the best and of course uh, those who are successful in that, the pastors become rock stars and all the rest of it. But there's no call regarding conviction of sin. There's no call to repentance. The postmodern gospel defines the good news of God as condoning all manner to the satisfying of the flesh. If it feels good, it must be good. And, and so anything goes. I, don't, I think I told you the story in, in one of our postmodern churches that is not far away. Uh, there was a couple and the man uh, decided that he wanted to uh, take up. He was married to a woman. He was going to take up with another man. And so he joined with another man. They all stayed in the same church. And it turns out uh, that the man that he joined with also had a wife. And they were put in a place of service where they would be seen as uh, ministers uh, in a way in this particular church. And then the problems began because the pastor who was not alarmed at the two men deserting their wives to become homosexual partners, but the pastor was alarmed that one of the homosexual partners was committing adultery because his divorce had not gone through. And so everything would have been fine. You just have this gay marriage in the church 
and you can serve as soon as you divorce the wife you left so that you could take up with the man. Now that is an example of something that actually took place in one of the postmodern churches, which happens to be one of the biggest in the world. The postmodern gospel defines the good news as God condoning all manner of the satisfying of the flesh. The postmodern gospel has no cross, has no redemption by the shedding of blood, has no idea that through the work of Jesus Christ, God was satisfied. In other words, there was propitiation for sin. And God was satisfied through the work of Christ. Therefore, in the postmodern gospel, there is no value in the death of Christ. There is no, no identification for us where we could say, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Can't say that. There is no death and value in it for us. There is no burial whereby we were we found that our death was sure and that we were buried with Christ. And there is no resurrection whereby we are made new creatures by being raised from the dead and thereby we can walk our lives in a way, live our lives in a way that will glorify God. None of that exists. And finally, there is no looking for the return of Christ. For quite frankly, as you look at that which they truly hold to, oh yes, they'll use a word of this here and there to, to give some credibility. But when you get right down to what they teach and what those become who on a weekly basis listen to those lies and rather than being changed into the image of God they continue to fall headlong in the depths of death and this will go on Do you understand that the apostasy, that is the falling away, is that which will come that makes ready for the man of sin? And I think, and I find many who teach the truth to also think, that, you know, 
as in the days of Noah, as like the, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, this earth is ripe for judgment. That the church will be taken, the believing church. And I tell you, for the most part, it won't be the postmodern church. It will be the onesie twosies little fellowships around the world that have not departed and that hold fast to the truth and love God and love Jesus and are jealous for God's reputation in the universe. And they will be called to meet Christ in the air. And they will be the chaste virgin. Because I tell you, if God said it's going to be true. It will be true. The bride is going to be dressed in white. Yes. Yeah. Let us pray. Father, Paul talked about another Jesus. In other words, that others would preach him. Paul talked about another spirit that he would be presented by false teachers to the church of Jesus Christ. Paul talked about another gospel which he told us about in Galatians chapter 1 where he said if any man come with another gospel than the one I have preached Though he be an angel from heaven, let it be known that he will be accursed forever. Strong words. But Father, too long overall has the church of Jesus Christ taken your words, your truth, and even your person with a grain of salt. Too long has the church made a savior and then twisted who he was and who he is. Too long have we received words that do not bring us to be fit to be joined to Christ. Dear God, I pray that you would reach out and seal that bride so that she would be and bring to you the glory and the honor that you deserve as the bride of Christ. Take these words, dear Lord, burn them in our hearts, make us to discern between good and evil, and make us to understand, Lord God, 
that to be friends with the world is to be the enemy of God. We love you, Lord. Have your way in each of our lives. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.